Brett Michaels in that final. <laughs> I'm so glad we're recording. Say Brett Michaels again. <laughs> <laughs> the big time stuff that I wish I had. The big time stuff that'll make you mad. The big time stuff. I like the big time stuff. I like the big time stuff that I never had. Um, I thought we should do what, what do you want to call this segment? Let's rename it now. Can, doesn't not headline news. <laughs> not headline news. That's right. Is that really what you want to call it? Yeah, I think something like that. Like it's the the news within the news, the news behind the news. You know, it's never news, it's always stale by the time we hear it. But there is something in it. And how about how about just commentary on on or observations within the market? Yeah, I don't know. I think maybe something that grabs you okay. a little more. I don't know. Um, yeah. All right, so, we'll come with an in-your-face In your face. The opposite of meditation. We're going to scream at you for the entire segment. That's right. right. Just like the news does. <laughs> You're right. If it bleeds, Welcome it to bleeds. CNN. I am Neil Modi on the desk. This is Chris Heidel. A lot has changed in the last two and a half minutes while you watched that pharmaceutical yeah. commercial. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Neil, did you know that 20% of all the dollars in circulation now globally were created in the last six months? I'm not quite sure what to think of that. That's a, it's quite a big thing to consume. To, Is that just, <laughs> that's dollars. Yes. So when we just take dollars. an account, if we take an account all the currencies, how much have we been? Ooh, that's a good question. <laughs> I don't have the answer to that one, but I think the dollars lead the charge. The most globally, uh, you know, widely accepted currency um, used in the most transactions, um, most in demand. But uh, yeah, the the Fed is the U.S. central bank, but really it's the central bank to the world, right? They make domestic policy, but it affects everyone uh, globally in the markets. Uh, so. Does that mean the bread basket of goods of what we can buy has gone down significantly? Like, let's just take bread and milk. I'm not, I guess I wouldn't have known if it went up 10% truly. How um, did you pick 10%, Neil? I was just reading that year to date, food prices across the board are up in India by 10%. The Indian government claims that CPI inflation there is about 7%. But food um, prices generally, uh, food costs are up globally. Um, but the numbers from India were pretty shocking. Are you noticing that in Pasadena? Because I'm not, and it's maybe because I don't pay enough attention, right? Okay, I buy at the same grocery store. If bread's up 50 cents, I'm not so sure I'm going to notice. Yeah, it's starting to translate, of course, into higher uh, consumer goods prices, but you do see it in the raw materials. Um, you know, we talked last time uh, about markets, and I said this is a generational investing opportunity. I think in certain areas of the commodities market, and back then I was speaking specifically of the energy sector because it's uh, just so beaten down um, <laughs> and so inexpensive uh, compared to all the alternatives. But if you look at you know coffee or wheat, soybeans, corn, um, there's been just tremendous upward pressure on those prices. Um, we haven't planted 
I think about 5 million acres of corn this year because of coronavirus. So we'll have a less than stellar crop yield. And we've got huge demand from China, um, from India, uh, where we've had lots of floods, parts of Europe, where there's been crop damage. So, um, you know, I think uh, this is something that's ongoing, and it's not helped by the dramatic increase in the supply of dollars. Inflation isn't rising prices, it's falling money. And I'm afraid, you know, with all this dilution of the money supply, it's likely that we'll get that with a lag, but it's coming. Talk to me about what that really means in terms of purchasing power. The cost of materials is going up. Um, the cost of the dollar is is inflating, right? It's not as valuable as it was before. Does that mm-hmm. mean when I go buy a new house, I'm likely to have to pay more? Yes. That yeah. also means that all of these millennials who don't have houses are going to have a harder time buying a house than they did just six months ago. Yeah, uh, it does have several implications, Neil, I think about a lot. Um, First, uh, yeah, what assets to own (laughs) that can um, safely protect you from the declining value of the currency? Um, I don't think that the stimulus is over, no matter who ultimately is claimed claimed, uh, victory in this election, Um, who's anointed president, (laughs) won't matter as much. I think um, we're going to see more of that and shifting investments more toward a commodity basket, um, raw materials and hard assets is probably the best prophylactic measure to protect your wealth you can undertake. Real estate, um, real assets are part of that. Um, Other things that can keep pace with inflationary pressures are um, companies that exhibit the royalty model, um, something like Visa or MasterCard or PayPal, um, Western Union, you know, companies that move money around but make a fee um, on the volume. Uh, As the volume of of the transactions increases, so too does their fee. Um, Is the volume of transactions up across across the segment right now? That's uh, a question I, um, I'm seeing, yeah, for certainly uh, there's been a lot of consumer purchasing. Most of it's online. So you're seeing huge volume increases in uh, Visa, MasterCard. Uh, I don't know as much about PayPal or trans uh, transfers through Western Union or MoneyGram. Um, but those are good businesses in an inflationary environment, surely. Um, so those kinds of business models tend to work well. Um yeah, I don't withdraw cash anymore. That's something new. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I used to at least get some cash for the farmer's market. Right, 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 right. No longer. Yeah. I don't go to the farmer's market. Well, even if you do, most of those have square, square or some yeah. payment. Yeah. I still some, carried some cash for that, right? I didn't uh-huh. know what else I really needed cash for because occasionally you run into somebody who didn't have good change or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I... Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how long uh, cash will remain in circulation. I used to think of it as a part of our civil liberty, right? You know, if you want to engage in an anonymous, non-trackable transaction, it's much, much harder now. <laughs> For whatever reasons you might have. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> For doing it. Sounds that. like an interesting crypto conversation. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So are you, are you into crypto now in the market? I am not yet convinced of crypto's value as a currency, so Bitcoin. Um, what does it take? And you know, not all of the crypto space has shown themselves to follow the Ten Commandments religiously. <laughs> There's been a lot of pirating and a lot, I've never heard a lot of, of false claims. I've never heard huh? of Mount, Mount Grok and getting hacked, right? That was the first Right, hack, right. Or even that. now, you know, the the Tether is uh, being investigated right. by the New York Attorney General, I think, and they've yet to come up with, they're supposed to back their coin dollar for dollar. Um, and that creates liquidity for the crypto market that's kind of necessary. But their auditors quit, and so far they've not, well, they're silent on whether they have new auditors and whether they're going to answer the AG's demands. But that's a dark cloud hanging over the crypto market. And then you have Ether, which I think is fascinating too. Those um, are smart contracts, you know, which are pretty cleverly written. So I could, say, pay a contractor using Ether and it's a smart contract, so it would release funds to him or her <laughs> when certain milestones were reached. And if those milestones were not reached, then those funds could be returned to me. I think those are um, important developments in that space uh, and will have quite a, a powerful impact on the markets, a lot of use cases for that. But still, again, nascent, and I'm watching this to see how it develops. So what other major trends? We haven't talked about the market in quite some time. You, you did say, yeah. you know, once in a generation opportunity in some of the commodities market. Define that. Mm -hmm. This to me, Neil, feels like 1999 in some ways. I'm sure for investors who are even older than I, there are other um, periods like maybe 1966 you could hearken back to. Um, in 1999, or sorry, 98 to 2000, early 2000, I watched as the oil price per barrel went from $11.98 to $33. So it tripled. All the news was about our great friends at Microsoft. It was about technology back in 1999. Today, the songs are similar. Technology shares contain or uh, comprise the largest value sector in the S&P index. Um, you know, just the top three companies, Amazon, Microsoft, um, and Google um, now have a, a market capitalization that's over $6 trillion. It's extraordinary. It's larger than the uh, GDP of Germany. Um, so those valuations are stretched pretty high. Um, a lot like they were in 1999. Um, and at the other side, the raw materials we use to create the world we live in, to fuel the businesses, et cetera, um, are at all-time lows, especially relative to financial assets. We've never seen commodity prices this low. Um, you can use the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index and compare it to the S&P 500 or you know, the Bloomberg Commodity Index, whichever your favorite is. And you can see just how low commodity prices are as compared to what's happened with financial assets. Um, and also, as I've been watching these markets, you know, looking at it year to date, you can see almost all of the commodity complex has moved substantially higher. 
gold and silver get some of the publicity um, in the press as financial alternatives. Um, and nature's Bitcoin. <laughs> um, but less publicly uh, known and reported on are the movements, as we talked about, with the grains. Almost all the grain complex is up in the mid-30% range year to date. Um, lumber skyrocketed this year. At one point, was up over 109%. It's fallen back as construction has settled down due to the weather um, and the approaching winter. But uh, we still have seen generally this entire complex. Copper, zinc has had a tremendous year. Natural gas up 48% or so. So all of this is happening. And really, again, we're not seeing it in the headline news, but we're seeing it in prices. And it's certainly filtering in globally to food prices, as I mentioned, but also certainly in construction and other places. Fascinating. So you still didn't do a phenomenal job of defining a once-in-a-lifetime, once-in-a-generation opportunity for me. Uh, let me do it again. 40 years ago, Neil Modi. <laughs> ExxonMobil was the largest stock in the Dow Jones Industrial Average. 40 years ago, 1980. Um, the energy sector was the largest sector at 35% of the S&P 500 index. Fast forward today, in the year 2020, energy is the smallest sector behind materials at 2.4% of the index. ExxonMobil on August 25th was kicked out of the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Um, and oil, energy especially, are resoundingly hated uh, because of many factors, but primarily the ESG movement in uh, institutional guidelines that uh, require uh, or demand higher ESG scores, environmental, social, and governance scores. Um, naturally, oil companies <laughs> are considered to be a bit dirty. Can imagine why. <laughs> Not the most yeah. environmentally friendly. <laughs> right, 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 right. Though many have made great strides, they still don't generally have high ESG scores. Um, and most institutional funds, uh, pension plans, etc., have uh, ignored or... Uh, eschewed this sector. So prices are very, very low. Um, we've really never seen anything like this. And as much as I agree we should preserve hydrocarbons, uh, when you look at the makeup of the energy grid here in the U.S., in other countries globally, and certainly knowing that emerging markets like India and China um, represent the bulk of oil demand, then you have to say that you know, as we are making improvements in renewables, oil, um, natural gas, hydrocarbons still are very critical to the supply chain and the functioning of markets in this global economy and will be with us for a number of decades ahead. Um, there has been, of course, growth in renewables, especially wind mostly, most recently. Um, but again, you know, here in the U.S., um, hydrocarbons are 68% of the energy grid. Um, Let, yeah. Let's go at it so again. We really are. When I see, when I hear once in a generation opportunity, I hear like maybe I could mm -hmm. make, you know, 100% or more potentially in uh -huh. 24 to 24 months to five years in something that would have taken me 50 or 40 before. 
Yeah. I think you can get a, uh, a decade's worth of return in the next three to four years or less. Um, oil, oil prices, oil-related equities um, tend to move very, very rapidly with inflation. You know, usually people talk about the best inflation hedge is gold or precious metals. It's a very good one. But actually, historically, oil has been a better inflation hedge. It's been more positively correlated to inflation than has the price of gold. Um, and of course, you might recall, I mentioned that the oil price moved per barrel from 11 to 33 while I was watching it under the microscope. <laughs> and everyone was buying Pets.com and Exodus Communications and WorldCom. And Enron. <laughs> I thought, this is strange. But leaving the music of the dance hall aside and just looking at it, remember, oil peaked at $147 right. a barrel. And yes, in the intervening years, so from 33 to 147 is quite a move. Even if I felt like I got in late because I should have bought it at 11, you know, psychology can be our worst enemy in investing. Um, but this uh, will probably replay itself. It's baked into the cake, Neil. The um, energy crisis is already... Um, I think, a foregone conclusion. The question, of course, that I can't answer and no forecaster should is when. <laughs> they say, if you say how much, don't say when. <laughs> if you give a direction, don't give a date. You know, those old jokes about forecasting because no one knows anything about the future and 2020 has certainly reminded us all of that. But I just think that we're seeing this script uh, play out again and that uh, we'll be very surprised there have been so many rigs shut in. We've never seen the, this rig count so low globally at under 400 operating drilling rigs. Um, this has to crimp supply. And once demand comes back post-COVID, um, we'll see an extraordinarily extraordinarily tight market. So you, you, you think so. post-COVID is the only potential, it is actually potentially a phenomenal marker of when the returns will start to come in. Um, I don't think it necessarily is post-COVID. It, um, it looked like this current week we saw some um, life come back into the energy markets, the um, energy services, and the, the exploration and production side of the market. It's almost as if we recognize that the demand destruction from COVID wasn't what was expected. You know, there were predictions when COVID first became a real frightening prospect in March that um, oil demand would drop by 30% globally from 101, roughly 101 million barrels per day down to 70 or 69 million barrels a day. That never happened. The peak to trough was about a 10% drop to uh, from 101, a little more than 10% to 89 million barrels a day or so. But again, most of that demand's coming from uh, emerging markets. And China's demand is up by a million barrels a day currently over what it was last year in 2019. So that demand's not only returned, it's uh, greater than it was a year ago. Um, and I dare say that's going to be the same case with India uh, once demand returns. And yes, it's true. We've not seen passenger air travel. Um, of course, airlines a big consumer of oil, um, autos etc. and driving has declined. But so too 
have we seen um, transports pick up, you know, delivery, people right. ordering food and ordering um, Amazon from home and having these short haul flights and, you know, the couriers, et cetera, have multiplied <laughs> tremendously. And we just really didn't see the demand drop like we thought. Um, globally, demand is off by about a little less than 8% now. About 93 million barrels a day is that, the current that's rate. That's interesting to um, me because, I, and, you know, when we talk about COVID going away, I actually no longer believe it'll go away anytime, you know, in the next five or seven years. Well, of course, you know, I'm certainly no epidemiologist. <laughs> I have to TV, always though, say, you? right, we're not. <laughs> yes, but, but you know, uh, there are those who argue, of course, this will be with us permanently until it becomes like the common cold. Right. right. Um, that, that is my belief. So. Mm -hmm. Right. We'll, mm -hmm. we'll just get better at treating it like the flu. I, I think about it less like the common cold and more like the flu. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And certainly I think, you know, we'll have in the milieu a lot of uh, stronger antibodies to fight whatever. COVID morphs into the breakdown in the of, you know, just using the oil as an example. I would have figured a lot of oil was used in going to work for everybody. And I wonder if, you know, a third mm -hmm. of the economy mm -hmm. never really quite goes back to work the same way. Yeah, I think that question has somewhat been answered because even during the worst part of the quarantines and lockdowns, we still saw, again, delivery and transports um, pick up where people were driving themselves to the stores and <laughs> doing things that's now um, yeah. uh, been, I've been more distributed to to grocery store than ever through different networks. To get yeah. out of the house. Mm -hmm. You need milk? I'll get mm -hmm. it now. You don't need to yeah. milk today yeah. or tomorrow. <laughs> I'll be right back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah. And... Um, you know, with, with the advent of electric vehicles and all of these different um, ideas about renewables, um, certainly there's growth there, and this is all very positive for the planet. I just uh, believe, again, from an investing standpoint, <laughs> I used to have a friend who was kind of a mentor to me when I was a young broker first learning how to invest, and he used to tell me, you got to buy the things that are going to get you fired. <laughs> What is completely uninvestable? And that's where you're going to find deep value. Um, there's always the risk, of course, of buying what we jokingly call a melting ice cube, <laughs> a business like the Yellow Pages or something that was really going away. Um, but I think in the case of oil, oil-related equities, and broadly speaking, agricultural producers, commodity uh, producers, mining companies, Copper, zinc, I mean, all of these uh, are tremendous values right now in the broader market and have a tailwind behind them. So, Interesting. What, what other interesting trends are, are um, coming across your desk that, that you can talk about that you're doing research into? Um, that's been an area we've just covered of primary focus. When you say but, primary um, focus, does that, does that take do a third of your research time or half or more? Um, it depends. It ebbs and flows, you know. Because I had um, looked at the commodity space 20 years ago, I have many of those companies, uh, an understanding of their business models. Um, <laughs> so there's, the no, way to, there's no way to measure it. You've been following it for too long. 
Yeah, it's kind of, uh, yeah, 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 we're kind of lucky, you know, in some ways that with age, you've got, uh, I still have some memory, <laughs> and uh, you you kind of build these, you know, files in your mind of uh, these investment opportunities, and they, everything is cyclical, so they come back into vogue, uh, and then fall out of fashion again, um, and so I think today, probably the most uninvestable asset is coal. <laughs> I'm not recommending coal. And uh, everyone should do their own due diligence. But I do think that, um, you know, when you see the hydrocarbon space generally, you're seeing just tremendous uh, value in an area that's been overlooked by investors who have favored fast growing, primarily do, technology companies. Don't you companies. think tech is probably overpriced today? Or do you think there's still a fair amount of room to grow? Uh, <sighs> I think generally those valuations are stretched. Again, it reminds me of 1999, where we see this sort of diametrically opposed markets, um, a tale of two cities, <laughs> to borrow from Dickens, where people have just, uh, you know, the, the commodity space overall has been widowed or orphaned by market investors, and the love has gone to um, technology companies, and not without reason, you know. Um, asset light companies, um, high returns on equity, um, lots of growth as people have been staying at home, working from home, using their computers, buying more computers, um, logging into Zoom, streaming. It's all um, very reasonable. Is it sustainable is a question too, and I don't know. Um, I don't even know if um, the online advertising market, targeted ads, is going to be the fuel it's been for the growth in the internet. So um, there's a great book called The Subprime Attention Crisis, Neil. I don't know no, if you've read it or come across it, yeah. by a guy named Tim Huang. He is a lawyer, and he's a formal uh, Google employee. Um, and he's written a book about uh, you know how much uh, fraud, fluff, and um, uh, inflation there is in the cost of digital targeted ads. And um, how ineffective most of those ads are. There are, of course, uh, markets like luxury goods, he cites, where targeted advertising works very, very well. But the old spray and pray model of putting up billboards and, you know, or um, ads in newspapers or magazines uh, often is just as effective, depending on the intent, if you're just trying to create mind share rather than actually conduct a sale, um, conclude a sale, close a deal. Um, they're very different uh, metrics that are used. But generally speaking, um, the markets for online ads are opaque. You know, they're um, algorithmically driven uh, auction houses. Um, so even those who are on the demand side, who are um, um, selling uh, the advertising or buying the advertising, neither side really knows uh, clearly how those ads uh, are placed, how they're uh, adjudicated, and how the costs are arrived at. And that leads a lot of room for inflation of the costs um, and a lot of manipulation. And of course, then you've got ad blockers, you've got bot farms, which are clicking uh, on ads that uh, is a 
just huge problem of fraud in that marketplace. So there are a lot of questions about it, um, but yet it's grown dramatically and it's fueled the rise of the internet as we know it. Of course, Facebook and Google have gained the most from targeted ads. Um, and this would significantly undermine their valuation if that growth were to stop or slow. Is, um, is that because the advertising think, dollars are, I heard you say, you know, going back to traditional media, newspaper, magazine, other periodicals, um, <laughs> is there some emerging trend you're seeing in some of the advertising models? Or is that re re-emerging um, you know, or old emerging? I don't know what that, how you say that. <laughs> Yeah, uh, uh, that's a good question. I haven't seen any change to the trend yet. I think um, what Tim Huang's book is doing, uh, The Subprime Attention Crisis, is really just calling attention to um, how manipulated this market is and how opaque it is. He compares it to the subprime crisis in 2008, 7 and 8. I'm not sure I fully embrace that analogy, but I do see what he's saying. You know, there was a tremendous amount of opacity in lack of transparency in these large um, CDOs, collateralized debt structures, um, collateralized mortgage obligation structures, and they were packed with you know junk bonds. And he's saying basically, um, in an analogous way, that uh, a lot of the digital ads which are placed are junk, <laughs> and even the the buyers don't know it necessarily. You know, um, you you don't know what position your ad is in. You don't know where it shows up on a page. It could be at the bottom. It could have been glossed out. It could have been blocked by an ad blocker. Um, but you're told that the ad was delivered, quote <laughs> And you must pay and for there it are certain metrics that, you know, that you must pay. Yes, yes, yes. Even if it was a bot farm in Indonesia that, you know, clicked repeatedly on your <laughs> ad. You're a local plumber in, in Pasadena, California, and you're <laughs> being taken advantage of through this opaque network, um, but you don't know it. Um, so I just think that it's possible that there will be a change toward greater transparency with digital ads. I think a lot of consumer goods have already started to back out of that marketplace, like Procter & Gamble, of course, one of the largest advertisers, if not the largest advertiser in the U.S., um, has said, you know, branded consumer products <laughs> are not really um, benefiting from uh, online advertising. But products that create some sort of jealousy or envy, like luxury goods, luxury cars, right? You know, let your friends see you in this Lamborghini. That seems to work somewhat. <laughs> Generates clicks. I guess envy works, vanity also works. It's interesting just to see. Uh, some of those things are to art. To get clicks. Right? Yeah. 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 So anyway, but that uh, that's something that fascinates me. Is there a ticking time bomb at the heart of the Internet? Um, there's certainly a cause for rethinking how we've adopted the advertising model um, as the go to model. It certainly was, uh, in many ways, looking back, the easiest. Um, but with all the problems that we see with Facebook and Google um, and the manipulation that uh, um, naturally happens when you're being advertised to, <laughs> it's, uh, it's probably not the best model, or at least there should be some competing model. Um, but I also think, too, this was a problem with early journalism in the 
newspaper industry, and the newspaper industry grew up. Uh, it took years um, from you know a lot of yellow uh, journalism to a much more sober uh, and responsible sort of third estate in American politics, um, a responsible sense-making organ. And I think the internet can certainly be that. <clears throat> um, though I'm still not yet uh, fully clear in my own mind on the path forward. I do think this is a very interesting contribution Tim Wong's made to understanding the advertising model and the flaws within it. So um, that also leads me, of course, to question the underlying premise of the growth in these companies, especially, say, Google and Facebook, um, and to a lesser extent, other parts of the, of the internet space. Um, I think um, the COVID vaccine has led a lot of companies to also become very richly valued. <laughs> Moderna. Um, <laughs> yes. And that's a... That's potentially a short sale candidate if you have the guts. Uh, do your own research. <laughs> Think about it. But there are a couple things you have to know about COVID, of course. This is likely, if you do get the vaccine, it's one and done. A Moderna's case, you know, I think um, with the Gates Foundation and the Internet, they already paid for 5 million copies of the vaccine. Should it ever uh, come out? With, so a lot of different governments now signing contracts with these pharmaceuticals yeah, as well. Yeah, but, you know yeah. they're obviously having trouble in their trial, um, and they have cold chain supply issues, right? Like, can you keep it at negative eighty when you deliver it Fahrenheit? Right, because yeah. most freezers are not yeah. built for that. Um, so <laughs> I've actually seen. Well, I just know, you know, biotech companies never ever hide good news. <laughs> COVID-19 is likely, <laughs> right, right. COVID is likely a one and done disease and it's not going to become an annuity for any of these companies. So we have to be careful about the valuations well, the we're grants, ascribing to right? them. The grants are not um, going to ever happen at that prolific right. a, a pace likely again. It's more likely that the granting agencies right. are going to put better programs in to spread the knowledge. Right. So you have... Yeah, I mean, you have companies like Twist Bioscience. Out of Seattle, I mean, I this... Yeah, are they? Yeah. Well, you know, their, um, their, their website says, at Twist Bioscience, we work in service of customers who are changing the world for the better in fields such as medicine, agriculture, industrial chemicals, and data storage by using our synthetic DNA tools. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Uh, it seems like the core of their platform is a proprietary technology. They say that pioneers a new method of manufacturing this synthetic. And, and I guess they're out of San Francisco to correct that, but I, I thought they might have seen a small office form here. Or it's a common enough name. People are calling them, you know, Twist Biotech versus Twist Bioscience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it seems to me like that's a commodity business anyway. Um, synthetic DNA. And, you know, I mean, they've had a 322% jump in their share price roughly this year. But, uh, you know, they've got a 23% gross margin, it says, but as a company, they've just been losing ever and ever larger gobs of cash. Um, I was reading this analyst named Lawler. He said the best thing they could do to increase and improve their bottom line is to stop selling DNA immediately. Do nothing. <laughs> just stop. <laughs> Do nothing. Right, right. Just stop. Right. You'll lose less money. 
but uh, those are just really some high level examples of uh, what we've seen in that space. And again, the richness of those values, uh, which should make everyone pause. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that definitely gives me pause, especially when I look at what generation technology they're working on. So a lot of these, a lot of what I'm seeing in some of these pharma companies are, let's take the Pfizer example. They're working on a first generation RNA platform. Um, and I guess I think a little bit about it because we invest in a third generation platform. Um, mm -hmm. No major mm -hmm. pharma company has an <laughs> RNA program. Um, there's probably, you know, there might be hundreds of RNA companies, but there's probably only like five who have done something significant that are worthy of paying attention to that are private still in the world. Um, and yet the stock market jumps, you know, at this mRNA technology um, with, you know, uh, <laughs> with cold supply chain issues, right? Cold chain issues. Um, and I guess we mm -hmm. saw CureVac then say today, hey, no problem. We'll, um, we'll do it without any refrigeration issues, with just normal refrigeration. Um, mm -hmm. The other major issue people miss in vaccine development is that a lot of uh, the vaccines that are developed don't really take into account manufacturing. So <laughs> it sounds really funny, <laughs> but most inventors who see something that works together and then go do something aren't really as clear about how they mass produce it. And you want an example, look at, um, and I've given you this example, I think privately for, but look at GSK's adult shingles vaccine, owns 90% of the market. Um, the adjuvant or the... Um, special ingredient that makes it more efficacious is Chilean red tree bark when there's no composite for it. Like hmm. there's only so much Chilean red tree bark hmm. available at any given moment. <laughs> right. right. And right. I, I don't think that right. this is that bad, but I'm just saying in general, this field hasn't tried to think through all of the problems while it's been a little more hits driven than it should for people who spend so many years getting a proper education to bring things that matter so much to the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you think the reluctance of the big pharma companies has been to embrace the um, mRNA? Well, we'll just say RNA in general. Um, there hasn't been an approved drug, right? So I think we're about to see the first RNA vaccines get approved for, you know, through Moderna, through CureVac, through um, uh BioNTech, essentially through Pfizer, right? Because Pfizer bought BioNTech. Mm -hmm. um, and as that starts to happen, then it's going to be massive embrace. <laughs> right? like, oh, wow. Why didn't, why didn't we have an RNA program? Jeez. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and then there's going to be a fight for the RNA programs right. that exist. Um, you know, I, mm -hmm. fear of, I, I think a lot of these companies are still too driven by their stock price because too much of the executive pay is based mm -hmm. on you know, where we're at now versus as much as they pay executives, I almost kind of think, you know, let's pay you slower. Let's pay you over 20 years. And let's, let's see if your contribution actually makes the company valuable over the next, you know, 15 after you're gone. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. yeah. Well, and I, I think you are onto something, Neil. I think we've become as a society, very allergic to failure. No. And a need for speed as well. It's not yeah. just, I mean, Twitter. Yeah. Right. Like Twitter is a place you and I both get news. That is not phenomenal. Right. That is not, that is not a sign of, of brilliance 
in my mind. 140 mm-hmm. characters. Mm-hmm. R- really? Like the most listened to podcasts, 20 minutes and under. Are you serious? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> like, wow. don't, don't tune in. That's yeah. fine. This is bad. Yeah, don't our don't tune in. That's alone. fine. Um, these these right. people on right. Facebook right. are our friends. Uh, the, the term's not accidental. Like people think about these people as our friends. I think of a friend as somebody you call regularly and you joke around with regularly and have a real yeah. deep connection yeah. with. It's not, I saw the best photos you posted from your vacation. <laughs> right, yet again. I am, well, you're preaching to the choir, Neil. I think of this all the time. Um, you know, I laugh when LinkedIn sends me those notices. Um, no offense, Microsoft. <laughs> but, you know, celebrate celebrate Neil's work anniversary. I'm like, that's a real thing. You guys made that up. I know. <laughs> I mean, I would never call a real friend. They were like, yeah, congratulations. You've been working at that job for three years. Or even years. 30. Or even 30, no. right? Right. It's like, no, no. Call me on my real birthday. anniversary <laughs> or my birthday. <laughs> Tell me you appreciate me. That's better. But <laughs> Glad you've been slaving away over there for three years. Congrats. <laughs> but I'm more convinced that holding anyway, companies will become it's... more valuable and focused on by the value investors because they are more long-term. Right? Obviously, you've mm-hmm. seen that. But um, I think I don't know how else you're going to measure or give value to in a public market to the opposite of uh, bonusing for quarterly performance. Yeah, this is the the challenge, um, you know, and I think it's been uh, tremendously exacerbated, of course, by the the rise of uh, um, program investing and uh, index investing. I mean, who's going to vote all those shares? <laughs> and then people can trade a whole index in and out as if they were trading a stock. Um, it's a very strange world. I mean, I'm thinking that those developments, of course, are good in many ways, but uh, also haven't, again, kind of like Facebook, been fully thought through. If we're going to demolish the New York Times, okay, but what will replace it? It took a good couple hundred years to build up that institution, and um, for all of its flaws, it has good points. (laughs) Yeah. Can it? it, (laughs) Right. Can it be recreated? The same with our, our leading uh, learning institutions, you know. We've come under fire from everything, from Harvard to MIT to... Um, we've just gone into this strange uh, world where ignorance has been uh, highly well, celebrated. Well, I don't think <laughs> and, the institutions are going to be the same going forward, right? I think, you know, software engineering, you don't necessarily need to go to school for the same way you did before. Um Right, right. Do you think right. it's you're going to have well, to go for hard sciences, biology materials? Um, it may probably be good to learn more about humanities, but I don't really. I think there's a whole segment that it doesn't really matter if you go anymore. I hope that's true, Neil. I think part of the problem is what happens in all advanced societies. You know that joke: the administration expands to. Um, handle the needs of the expanding administration. <laughs> so you have I hadn't heard that before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
It's like a bad cycle, right? So you have these uh, old line institutions. Uh, Harvard's a great example, and um, it's probably still worth paying the price um, just because of the educational quality and the people you'll meet. But the cost of universities like that have grown and grown as you've got more tenured professors and more administration that uh, just has grown and never been cut. Uh, in the same way you see it with other um, institutions, uh, especially, of course, uh, state, local, and federal government. Um, I don't know. Um, so is tenure going to go the way of the pension? I don't know. I mean, I think, too, yeah, I don't know. I think tenure might still be important because you've got to have some amount of academic freedom. I think institutions, too, have been um, chasing the dollar no. Um, no. tremendously, you know, technology <laughs> transfer and all of that. So if you're a professor, it's very hard for you just to, you know, study polymer chemistry um, unless you have some, you know, application you're working on or some product that could be commercialized. It's just hard, I think for most professors just to do old school research well, for the purpose so of research, research alone. Research, I think you're referring to that we, that we did at one point. Right, 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 right. But there's also been a yeah. massive advancement I, of things that um, we can't catch up to. So, you know, in our business, we, we talk about how there's no lack of transformational technology on the shelves. There's only a lack of uh, teams to take it to the market. Huh. So you disagree with the technologists who say that the peak years of technology, technological advancement are over. We're never going to get the productivity growth we had from railroads and indoor plumbing and uh, the communications networks and the Internet. That, that no, um, I, I, those I were big explosions. Yeah, I, I think we're, we're going to see that um, the space race happen in the healthcare race now. Um, because we had, you know, plunging um, uh, budgets in terms of giving grants from every major engine, you know, agency to research scientists. And I think that's going to go back up. And I think that will actually benefit universities dramatically. Um, and more and more people will be able to do research and follow the hunches and work on the COVID vaccines. And I think yeah. that over the next decade, we're going to see the equivalent of that space race in healthcare play out. But, you know, it, the internet wasn't born, even though it came out of the space race. What, the Sputnik was launched in 68? Um, yeah, I mean, that's Sputnik. what launched the space race. No. 58, sorry. 58, so I think. So, you know, we, we're only mm -hmm. benefiting from, you know, uh, Sputnik uh, leading to communications, leading to the internet, you know, as we know it. The ballpoint pen, too. Don't forget the ballpoint pen. We're impressed, you know, our, our tubes for toothpaste. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, all those great... But it took a lot of years for it to play out for us to be able to use the internet the way we did. They weren't suddenly using the internet in the right. right. So I think we're going to see this mass wave effect of even more devices that have the chance and maybe therapeutics and materials that have the chance to change how we interact to... Um, mm -hmm. what we want, right? I, and I think of technology really as an enabler. It's, it's supposed to 
Yeah, it's an extension of our desires it's not and wishes. Just that, right? though. I think of like technology advancement as making it so I, you know you think about oil versus you know horses, right? Which is more efficient to run oil, right? And so every mm-hmm. every bit of mm-hmm. technology that comes out should alleviate some sort of um, burden of doing something, right? And so, mm-hmm. do I think our best most productive years are? are behind us. I think we hit a plateau for a while. I think we're about to hit um, an extraordinary jump and bump in what we're about to see. My mom said the coolest. Ex- I like that optimism. And it's, I like you it. know, we we're seeing it in some of the investments we're making now, um, but I don't think we've begun to see what's going to come out. I don't think we've begun to understand how quantum computers are going to try and make, you know, the investing business uh, may be an antiqu- antiquity of the past in some ways. <laughs> right? Uh-huh. So, and I can't imagine that today, but I think it must be somewhere out there. Um, which means hopefully yeah. it's replaced by something yeah. more efficient and better that serves us all. Serving us is the point of technology. Service. Yeah. Well... You know, I look at uh, this and and uh, I definitely see um, the plateau, um, but I'm very much like you, Neil. You know, um, I'm very much a Frobenian. No, you know I've never heard Leo Frobenius was. True. Yeah. Do you know who? Yes. German cultural historian and uh, botanist and Africanist. Um. And do you know who Oswald Spangler no, was? I mean, we're going to fail these tests for me. Oh, well. So Oswald Spangler wrote a book called The Decline of the West back in the 1920s. And he was a German cultural historian, just like Leo Frobenius. But he believed that the, you know, uh, um, and he wasn't the first to compare civilizations uh, in morphological terms from, you know, um, uh, birth to adolescence to maturity, decline, and then death. So you see this cycle play out in a sort of large uh, way with the Roman Empire, etc. Um, he thought that the West generally um, <clears throat> and its cultural imperialism were um, decadent and waning, and there was this huge decline that was that he predicted. And the Great Depression seemed to vindicate him. Um, he's a very popular but very dark uh, read. On the other side of that was Leo Frobenius. And that's why I said I'm more Frobenian, because he believed that each phase led to a larger cultural flowering um, of human cooperation uh, and technological advancement. Um, and you can also view the world that way. You can see that each phase of civil civilizations developing led to breakthroughs, which even if in that particular civilization, as Rome collapsed <laughs> and went into Byzantium, you did have uh, just tremendous growth in the Arab world, um, and especially in mathematics and art and architecture and the flowering of Islam, um, while the 
Europeans were going through the so-called Dark Ages until the Renaissance. So you can see these ideas percolate. Um, they don't die out. Um, and then they recombine with great force. I think um, as long as we don't go backwards and lose our ability to communicate with each other, we're ready for another flowering. I, I love it. It's a phenomenal way to look at it. Yeah, I think we are at a point where we can really have much, much greater communication. Um, but I'm certainly afraid that uh, many of our leaders view it differently in this sort of uh, competitive way. Um, but I think cooperation is competition. Each party feels like they are better off or they would engage in this cooperative behavior. I'm trying to think of Elon Musk right now. Oh, he's already picked out a place for his city on Mars. So you were talking about the space. Please don't go there. Please don't go there. I don't know. <laughs> you can't fault the guy. He's thinking big, right? He's he's a big thinker. A big promoter. I, uh, a big yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was uh, I was going to say I I um, still am struggling with how the space race will fund itself. Right? I, I you know I've been surprised to talk to a number of family offices um, over the last month who are investing in more space deals. And I see these people as intelligent, huh. organized. Um, and I think they must be investing in like precursor product, not, you know, not so much mining the asteroid as much as um, picks and shovels. How's that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but that's still again if this if this industry, this sector can't fund itself. I mean, is it going to just be commuter travel? I don't think mining asteroids is anything we're going to see soon. What do you think um, is soon? Like I, I wonder if we won't see it in the next 20 years. Uh, I think beyond that 30 years or so. But I I don't know. I mean, how fast can cost come down? Um and will it still be cheaper? to mine something in space and have to bring, you know, all of that. the price of gold and platinum. Material back. Collapse huh? the price of gold and yeah. platinum. <laughs> well, could be helpful. Those have great, uh, great uh, characteristics in conductivity and other industrial uses. Um, but, yeah, it's, uh, it's a dream, I think, to sell this, you know. To sell the story of space travel uh, and, and the space and race, leave it to PT Barnum, um, Elon Musk to do it. Well, sometimes you need those people; are very necessary, yeah. right? Never underestimate a man. Yeah, yeah. Never underestimate a man who overestimates himself. <laughs> I think on that note, I want to say thank you for joining us on this podcast. <laughs> thank you, everybody. Yeah.